Ladies and gentlemen, we have finally reached a point. We have finally reached a point where Labour has officially become Tory light. Where Keir Starmer has finally given an ultimatum for all Corbynites to get out or get in line. And it was Public Chemist Chuck D. Bring the noise. Podcast Network. I am Charlie Taylor, and this is What's Good. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. Hope you've all had a good week in the circumstances. I'm only talking about this because I'm not talking about it in a week where, because there's been plenty of other shit going on. This just happened as I record today. Um, but yeah, um, Corbyn ain't gonna go under Labour anymore. Um, he's still gonna, you know, go for MPs and that. Uh, but he, I assume he's just gonna go independent, which is fine. You know, MPs don't. Is the thing MPs don't need to be Tory or Labour, right? They they really don't. They, they you really don't, right? You the point of the point of the British political system is mainly surrounded by you know MPs and local councils. <clears throat> that's where the, that's what that's what mainly the elections the elections of, you know, local elections and all that stuff, that's what they gener- generally are. You know, the general election you it makes it as if, like, it's a presidential election, which it ain't. Obviously, you know, we have to look at the entire manifest of, like, a certain party, and obviously the leader of that party has a lot of say in that, and ergo means, you know, it's their views, right? But, you know, MPs are local, inherently local, right? There are, you know, hundreds of MPs and they cover certain constituencies. An MP for Thanet is different for an MP in Castle Point, right? They're they're different. They have different agendas, right? And they have to have different agendas because every local constituency has a different agenda. Some, you know, the the, the MP for, I don't know, wherever wherever Walton on the Nays is... uh, is a, a constituent seed uh, has you know has more concerns over you know erosion, um, coastal erosion, and stuff like that. But then again, you know a MP for Lewisham has a different agenda, right? Has to. Um, so you know I don't really it doesn't really matter that Corbyn's going to be un, not under Labour anymore. I'm sure he cares, but um, I don't. Partly because he's not my MP. Um, I forgot what he's MP for. Um, Islington. Um, but yeah, for Islington, for the Islington people, I mean, sure, that might be a genuine shock and a genuine, you know, thing to think about now that their MP for how many decades now um, is going to be an independent and uh, whether they want that or not. But honestly, in my mind, it shouldn't really matter whether they're independent now or Labour previously. Um, but that's part, that's not really, that's not really the entire point. I was just, I don't know, giving schooling a little bit on the weirdness of um uh of uh, British politics. But um, yeah. Chance Keir Starmer. Chance Keir Starmer who just um just finally went mask off with it. Finally went mask off and just said, Fuck the Corbyn supporters, fuck you all. Um you're either Tory light or you're nothing now. So um yeah, shout out to shout out to Labour for um well, 
be, not be in Labour anymore. <laughs> like it's just it's not even remotely left wing anymore to me. Um, not that I cared. Um, I don't vote strictly for Labour. I've never had strictly voted for Labour. I have voted for Labour before, but I've never strictly just been for them. My ideal is just you know um, anybody but a Tory. That's pretty much it. Like I'll I'll give anybody a, a shot. Um, obviously not like, you know, the exit party or anything, or what they call themselves now, Reform UK, well, fuck it, you know I mean, just, obviously not that, but anybody else, yeah, man, Show, throw me a leaflet, so let me see what you're saying, let me see what you, what you want to do, independence, of course, you know what I mean, I'm always here for independence, I'm especially supportive of independence, um, if they're, if they're, you know, of the people, um, but, yeah, just shout to Labour for, finally, finally just taking the mask off and just saying, Fuck any left wing, um, it, a side of the party. You lock and fuck off. Go somewhere else. Um, we don't want you, and that's um, that's great because now we finally know what the landscape is. I mean, we knew what the landscape was for years, but now we finally know it for sure of what it is, and um, that's great. It's good to know. It's good to know. It's good to acknowledge these things, and then keep it moving, and um, you know, and just change how if you want to change on that front. Um, do you still stick with the status quo? Or do you switch yourself up? That's your decision to make once it comes down to it. Um, but anyway, I need to do a story on a voter ID at some point. Um, I feel like that's something that <coughs> UK-wise needs to be talked about. Um, but we'll get to it when we get to it, um, probably closer to the May elections. Um, but anyway, we have for this episode, uh, two music, a life and an art uh, segments. And uh, yeah, with that said... Formatted before we begin, email, socials, writing, all of that in the full show notes, as well as the music, and of course, other podcasts under the 5EPN. Uh, we had uh, uh, a part one on a RZA uh, retrospective, uh, we've got part two coming on Digging Digits next Tuesday, and uh, also we have uh, ISOS, um, Insurgent Source, drop in next Wednesday uh, on their bi-weekly schedule. And uh, yeah, we have. A, I've I've only seen they've only they've only dropped one um, uh, topic out of the three um, so far, and that one is about Scissor. So if you're interested in Scissor, um, please go um, check out the search source in the full show notes. And uh, yeah, just wait for Wednesday. Wait for next Wednesday. Um, but with that said, let's begin with this. Let the beat drop, and let's get into the show. Where 15 people are arrested after violence outside hotel housing, uh, asylum seekers, um, because yeah, that's not that's not concerning at all. Uh, I think it was in Liverpool that happened. Uh, one third of De La Soul True Goy dies age 54. Um, it's going to be so bittersweet um, receiving uh, being blessed with finally. Um, I mean, we've had other means of obviously listening to De La Soul, but um, it's finally coming on DSPs. After years of um, uh, of uh, legal battling, uh, but that's coming soon. I think in the next couple of months, and uh, it's all going to be without Trugoy, and uh, that's uh, just entirely, extremely bittersweet. Um, I have seen them live, and um, I'm extremely blessed to have done that. Um, God's Rap 2019, remember it like it's yesterday. Absolutely amazing day. Uh, Day Last Soul, Public Enemy or Enemy Radio, as they called themselves at that point, uh, for legal for legal issues, 
and also Wu-Tang and uh, DJ Premier hosting the whole thing. Um, but yeah, man, Daylight was just, um, yeah, it was good. Great crowd control, just um, great energy. Um, so shout out to them and condolences to everybody involved. Uh, the US shoots down more objects floating in their airspace. Um, whatever the fuck's going on over there, <laughs> I have no, no idea. Um, just everything being shot down out of the air. Um, just... They're not even not even spy balloons as the obviously the first one was, but um, yeah, it's just like uh, UFOs. It's did you what they're calling them now? Just um, yeah, just, they're not saying what they are, but um, they're being shot down. So weird, 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 weird. And uh, Kansas City Chiefs uh, beat the Philadelphia Eagles in Super Bowl Fifty Seven. Da-na-na-na-na. And um, lastly, Nicola Sturgeon uh, resigns as First Minister of Scotland, which means Scottish independence is probably most likely in the bin, uh, which is unfortunate. Um, I wanted chaos, and um, I'm not going to get that, so I'm sad about that. Um, but yeah, man, she, uh, she, wait, that's, that's what happens when you plant all your eggs in one basket, and uh, when independence ain't going to go down... What's the use of you? So, uh, yeah, unfortunate. But, um, hey, she's going to get a good book deal and all the other politician shit, um, all the other politician ben- political benefits um, that um, ex-politicians get. Um, so I'm sure Nicola Sturgeon will be just fine. So let's begin uh, first of two music topics. I'm going to do them back to back. And uh, this one is about Rihanna. Um, so I think I remember doing a piece on Rihanna uh, last year, when it was announced that she was going to be doing the hot, uh, the Super Bowl halftime show, um, and obviously how hypocrit- uh, hi- hypocritical that was, because she previously said she would never do, you know, something of that nature or anything with the NFL uh, because of Kaepernick, and here she is, um, years later, obviously doing it for free um, in some ways, because um, they technically don't get paid, but obviously. You know, um, she got all the benefits of, you know, um, of marketing her shit literally on stage. Like she literally just pulled whacked out um, like a um, some Fenty Beauty shit. And obviously, as you can imagine, because everyone's a sheep, um, everyone started uh, looking up Rihanna. Um, I think she was like the most listened to artist in the world for the past week or so or the past few days. Um, more IG followers, um, searches for Fenty Beauty, all of that shit. So she got her worth, obviously, in marketing and in advertising, which the whole thing basically was. It's one big advert. What is America if not one big advert for capitalism? It really is outstanding. But anyway, we'll get to that. Um, let's get to this piece. This is by Shamira Ibrahim. Um, it's uh, via Teen Vogue. Um, it's a rare one. I don't think I've done Teen Vogue before. Um, and simply called on Rihanna, her Super Bowl halftime performance, and a mogul's reality. Um, so I'm hoping for you know some. I saw a paragraph from this. Shout to Crystal who shared this, and I just call it. Um, and uh, yes, um, I'm hoping some good crit- critical critique, critical thinking uh, towards Rihanna as uh, as what I would to see her as as a billionaire first and an artist second at this point. Um, so yeah, let's jump right in. The year 2016 was marked uh, was a marked inflection point for Rihanna's position in the public eye. After an unprecedented run from 2005 to 2012, I I just I just don't remember her work. Like I mean, I remember her, if you play Ponder Replay, I'm gonna I'm gonna remember it, but I don't remember her like like actually coming out in 05. Like she 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 comes to me around like 
09 ish, you know, what I mean, around that time. Before the red hair, just before that, you know, obviously Umbrella, uh, whenever that came out. So, yeah, it just doesn't, it feels later than 05, but it's weird anyway. Anyway, that's just me. Uh, shaping the trends of uh, popular music at a breakneck pace. Breakneck pace. Seven studio albums in as many years, with an endless caravan of hits drawn from disparate material, influences, uh, musical influences uh, fr- ranging from dancehall, rock, blues, EDM, R&B, and trap. The Bajan superstar returned to the mainstream with Anti. The album was a tour de force, a distinct stylistic and thematic revolution from her powerhouse pop singles that held a vice grip atop the charts. A top charts. Fun fact: I still haven't listened to the album. <laughs> I love, um, I love Kissy Bell. I love Kissy Bell. That's actually probably my favorite Rihanna song. Actually, next to that, and Bitch, Bear have my money. Um, but yeah, that Kissy Bell is just an absolute tune. I love the obviously the sample. Um, but yeah, it's just an outstanding track. The beats are stripped down and slick. Her lyrics taut and unyielding from the first track, Consideration, featuring Scissor. Where the two eyes croon in unison. Let me cover your shit in glitter. I can make it gold. Later in the year, the MTV VMAs bestowed uh, Rihanna with the Video Vanguard Award. It was a moment fetid with a series of medley performances throughout the night that have been celebrated by fans as some of her best showings, not due to any singular technical proficiency, but because of of the perceived authenticity emanating from the stage as a dancehall rhythm broke out. That has always been the razor's edge that made Rihanna greater than the sum of her parts. She's an ethereal beauty with an impeccable ear for hits and gutsy approach to visuals and personal fashion, but it is her sharp and irreverent approach to celebrity that endeared her to fans. It is a carefully crafted image, one that requires curated negotiations of her public-private perf- uh, public, persona, which she largely addresses in her music. While she has always been careful to steer clear of continuous political messaging, the connected tissue has always been about reclaiming the narrative from the press, embracing the chaos of navigating emotions in public life, and choosing self-empowerment, whether it be via raunch, fashion statements, uh, or tattoo choices. That potpourri of elements is why, when she growls, I'm a rock star, fans and spectators, spectators alike have no choice but to agree. Since Antai and the VMAs, however, uh, much has changed for Robin Fenty and for SZA, for that matter, who has a a top charting album with SOS in 2022. Don't know why that needs to be mentioned, but here we are. Uh, There has been uh, the occasional feature over the last six years, DJ Khaled, Kendrick Lamar, and Pi Next Door all successfully got her on a record. But she's focused more on her efforts and shout to NERD as well for Lemon, banging track, better be the Lemon. Anyway. Uh, but she's focused more on her efforts on uh, on building her, the Fenty Empire. Fenty Beauty starting in 2017, Savage X Fenty 2018, the short-lived Fenty Maison uh, luxury brand in 2019, and Fenty Skin in 2020. A successful launch of Fenty Beauty, which she co-owns with French luxury retailer LVMH, and is currently carried in Sephora and Ulta franchises. Two shops I have never ever been inside comprises the majority of her present and why would i present well with <laughs> the one billion dollar valuation of the savage brand is buoyed uh, by a long-standing deal with amazon to broadcast her production showcasing the collections throughout uh, throughout the navy has eagerly anticipated a new knife studio album loosely labeled r9 as she became an executive found love and built a family Despite ascending to unprecedented wealth in the height of the Eat the Rich wave, Rihanna largely avoided scrutiny by promoting her charitable actions through the Clara Lionel Foundation, 
emphasising advocacy for immigrants' rights and domestic violence and choosing key moments to make a political statement. When she was asked to do the Super Bowl halftime show in 2019, her stance was firm. So, see, the fact that it was 2019 and not the initial moment of Kaepernick is even is all the more jarring. Like, it was years after this, and she and it was she only, she said this in 2019. Quote: I couldn't dare do that for what? Who gains from that? Not my people. I just couldn't be a sellout. I couldn't be an enabler. Unquote. Rihanna told Vogue in October. There's things within that organisation that I do not agree with at all, and I was not about to go and be of service to them in any way. It was a pointed statement that not only can, it just it just rings so hollow now. It's actually crazy how hollow that rings now. It was a pointed statement that not only came on the heels of ongoing scrutiny of the NFL's continued mistreatment of Colin Kaepernick, but also came just two months after Rock Nation CEO Jay Z had publicly announced a deal with the NFL, declaring, "quote." I think we've moved past kneeling, and I think it's time to go into actionable items, unquote. To the, pu- fucking both. <laughs> to the public's eyes, Rihanna had taken a stand opposing her boss, furthering the branding that she was unbound by the rules of public convention, even those of class solidarity. The frustrating reality, however, is that even someone with an ostensible Midas touch like Rihanna is felled by the albatross of capitalism. The intoxicating devil-may-care persona... Uh, that has dominated her brand. The red hair strolling down the streets with a glass or bottle of wine is now at the helm of multiple companies. Her notable skills of mixing, matching, and synthesizing cross-genre elements into pop smashes is transferring into cross-product branding, attempting to fuse her brand with the public zeitgeist in ways that occasionally reveal a stunning misread of trending opinions. Inviting Johnny Depp to participate in the latest Savage X Fenty, uh, I'm going to say Savage Fenty because the X is just annoying to put in the middle, uh, was a striking example of this. To many fans, it represented an aberration of a hardline trend of refusing to collaborate with public figures who enabled intimate partner violence, having previously severed ties with Savage ambassadors for related missteps. The spectacle guaranteed eyes on the show more than the clothes, um, yeah, arguably making the calculus worth the backlash. Similarly, uh, Rihanna choosing to do the Super Halftime show, an unpaid affair, lies at a distinct tension with the values she espoused only a few years ago. Rihanna herself has been mistreated by the organisation, having her song taken off their promotional run as CBS in the NFL scrambled to address Ray Rice's publicised assault of his now wife. But it presented a novel opportunity for Rihanna, the executive, for a halftime show that was now an Apple and Rock Nation collaboration. While promotional interviews for the show have emphasised the performance as a celebration of Rihanna's immense catalogue, as she purrs in, pour it up, money makes the world go round. She may have, she may not have been generating a direct income, but all of her brands configured a game day section of their site in the weeks leading up to the performance. Savage not only had a limited 17-piece merch collection, but also put up the dancers' looks for sale as a separate set after the halftime show. Mid-performance, Rihanna whipped out her Fenty Invisimat blotting powder to set her Fenty face in transition. I'm such a I'm such a man. I have I've no idea what the fuck blotting powder is. <laughs> oh gosh, it's embarrassing. Is it actually embarrassing? Anyway, uh. Rihanna has existed as more than an entertainer for quite some time. The messaging is laid bare in the construction of her halftime performance. Rihanna suspended in air, encircled by her planets of platforms with the Arizona night sky as her backdrop. 
She is a bright red sun, her dancers relentlessly exploding around her into fine darks like a bright constellation of stars as she cascades through a glimpse of the chart toppers that made her inescapable. That was a nice, uh, nice um, descriptive uh, piece of sentencing right there. That was great. Um, she is a solar system all her own, a big bang, a force of nature. Her mesmerizing visage, uh, <laughs> nearly close to my least favorite word, is already a meme. Brief, tight shots of her gazing directly into the camera, a mischievous twinkle behind her eyes as she strolls down the catwalk. For a fl- few flashes, her gravitas supersedes the cognitive dissonance of it all. Her catalogue standing on its own, paired with her impeccable style, charisma, and a clear attention to vocal control. And brief set pieces of her enshrouded of her enshrouded by her dancers as Carlos Santana's guitar solo blares in the background look like an exquisite fresco painting in the making. Rihanna's star shines so bright that it temporarily blinds us to the reality that she is a prophet-seeking enterprise, accountable to too many parties to truly hold firm to her long-standing pension or punk it's pension, isn't it? That's how you say it. I say pension for disruption. I've heard it said differently. Perhaps Rihanna, the artist, would have returned to her fans in a more avant-garde manner. But Rihanna, the salesperson, Rihanna, the billionaire, cannot turn down the world's biggest marketing platform, where she can advertise for free instead of shelling out millions for cherished 30-second slots. It doesn't make the show more or less entertaining, but it makes a pretense of Rihanna somehow being a magical exception amongst the wealthy where principles in solidarity with other marginalised people have negotiable price points, a bigger and more necessary pill to swallow. <sighs> yeah. I'm less, um, I'm, I'm much less uh, poetic about all this, I must admit. Um, you know, I, I, I get, you know, having, having the show and, you know, people enjoyed it. There was actually more people tuned in for the halftime show than the actual game Super Bowl, which is hilarious. Um, as a performance itself feels a bit mid, in my opinion, from what I've seen. I've seen it all, but I've seen most of it. Um, I found it a bit mid to look at. Um, you know, the songs are songs and, you know, they're enjoyable. You know, if, if, if anybody's going to put some Rihanna on in a house party, I'm going to jam to it, of course. You know what I mean? I'm not stupid. I'm not um, I'm not a Luddite. Uh, or Luddite in the word. But you know what I mean. Um, but... You know, I just can't get past the I can't get past the hypocrisy. Um, making that complete out and out stance, and then just you know, like I said, billionaire first, artist second, and artists have principles, as we will get to in the third segment, um, and, and most most likely, and um, yeah, it's just um, it's sad in some ways that um that she chooses to go the billionaire route and also be an artist, which is kind of jarring because people can be very stupid and be very um, just blinded by diamonds. <laughs> Not pun, pun intended, right? They just get blinded by the lights. Are there the lights? No, another pun intended, right? It's just it's too easy. Um, but, it, but people do. People do get blinded. They see Super Bowl halftime. Oh, my God, Rihanna. The Rihanna Bowl. Hashtag Rihanna Bowl. And, you know, proceed to buy Fenty Beauty for however much that fucking costs. I, I, I dare not even wonder how much that shit costs. Um, but yeah, man, it, it, it's the cognitive dissonance. And I just don't have that for Rihanna. I really don't. Um, I, you know, I have it for, I have it in some cases, right? Um, but for Rihanna, it's just, it's not, it's not hard at all for me. 
it's not hard it's not hard at all um for me to just see it see her for what she is and i'll say it again billionaire first artist second that's all it is simple as that And funny enough, just as I I, I split, I, I, was, I took a break between uh, the part, previous segment and this one, and I uh, just hopped onto it right quick as I was drinking my tea. And uh, one of the things I just saw was uh, all caps from a tweet, Rihanna's British Vogue cover. It's just, it's too easy. It's, see what I mean? It's too fucking easy. People were just like, oh my gosh, like, because... Rihanna and ASAP Rocky and the kid like is in the back as well. Oh my god, everyone melts. It's just oh, so it's it's too easy. It's 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 way too easy. Like fucking hell. Rihanna's got it made, man. She's just got like oh. anyway. Continuing on. Next music segment. Um this is all about British R and B. Um so I caught this piece first, I'm gonna read it. Um but there was also one via Vice uh, which was also good, um, which basically covered um, the similar subject about British R&B. Um, and this, you know, comes at an interesting time. Obviously, the Brits just put, gone, came and went, and Harry Styles obviously cleaned up, because why wouldn't he? Um, it's Harry Styles, it's the Brits, made a match made in heaven, right? Um, and there was one award he won, which was Best Prop Slash R&B Artist. And my question is, like, why is R&B not its own thing? Because for those in the know, or not in the know, British R&B is thriving right now. British R&B, British hip-hop, British jazz, all of it. They, the, the communities are so distinct now. You can't have, you can't put Dua Lipa, Harry Styles, uh, Anne-Marie, right? You can't put, you can't put pop artists, UK pop artists in the same vein as UK R&B artists, you just can't now. You can't because R&B is so distinctive now. Um, you know, people are developing their own sound and their own vibe, and it's much different to the pop sound right now. It's very, very different. So to put to have an award called pop and R- pop slash R&B, you might as well just put pop there because there's not going to be no R&B artists, true, true out and out R&B artists in there. They're just not. It's just not. But anyway, let's uh, jump into this. It's by Amna Modine. Um, and uh, via The Guardian, it's called The Hardest Music to Sell in the UK, Why Is British R&B Being Ignored? And I'm going to assume there's going to be a mention of like, you know, and literally the feature is is Ella May, and obviously her, you know, her thing was that, you know, she auditioned for X Factor like 10 or so years ago, and then, you know, basically went to the US and uh, found success there. Um, and uh, now she, like, I don't know what she. I, I don't listen to LMA's music that hard, um, but you know she's she's clearly thriving. So um, and that was because she went to the US instead of trying to firm it in the UK. And um, well, obviously there's a reason for that because of the quote: "The hardest music to sell in the UK." So why is it? Let's jump right in. Trevor Nelson, the God. Trevor Nelson, a veteran DJ and broadcaster, has said R&B remains the hardest music to sell in the UK, with artists still struggling to make their mark. And some turning to the US for chart success. There we go. So this is this is an argument that's been, you know, 
brewing for at least a decade. Um, and, um, you know, LMA is just one of many. Um, obviously, MNEK has done it as well. Um, Samfar has done it as well. Um, those are just three very notable names that have just, you know, they, they start off in the UK. They had, you know, they had supporters, but not in, you know, not enough to, you know, put food on the table, I assume. And then went to US, did some songwriting, you know, did some songwriting for certain people. And boom, they're who they are now. You know what I mean? It's it's, it's obvious. It's a direct correlation. It's, it's two plus two. Anyway. Nelson remembers jumping up and down every time a British R&B act made it into the charts during his pioneering BBC, BBC, One, BBC Radio 1 show in the 90s and 2000s. Quote, I was sort of saying to myself, I know this is a one-off, Nelson said. That the music, R&B, I love the most. And it's probably the hardest music to sell in the country. It just is, it's always been. Unquote. Uh, his beloved genre has been thrust back into the spotlight after criticism of this year's Brit Awards, which take place on Saturday, for failing to nominate any R&B artists for its combined pop and R&B category. There you go. Or any other leading categories. The only exception was R&B group Flow, who won Brit's Rising Star Award last December. And even with that, I can see the I can see Flow getting US buzz already. They're going to do US tour soon, and they're just going to be that. They're going to they're just be, because they give off the classic girl R&B group of the of of yonder, you know, of like the you know the TLCs and the SWVs and all and Destiny's Child, right? Obviously, they're not Destiny's Child and <laughs> they're not TLC, but they have that vibe, and because of that. The US are going to eat them the fuck up because I I already know um some I have, have some female American friends um that are really into flow already they've already they're already into it um so they're ready made the US is just ready made for R and B of that nature um and for some reason if it's not you know poppy like you know Little Mix you know what I mean Saturdays Tommy Kitten it, if it doesn't have that Spice Girls right if it doesn't have that poppy element people ain't going to fuck with it for some reason. And it's disappointing because I like Flo's music. They do, they, Flo has a decent flow, right? It's actually kind of good. They, they they fit that aesthetic and they do it well. Um, and they put the work in. But um, it's just weird how the UK just doesn't fuck with that unless they straight up just become a pop group. It's just a bit sad, to be honest. Uh, for Nelson, the omission raises questions about why British R&B has failed to take off in a country where other forms of black music, such as grime and drill, have broken through what was once thought to be impenetrable barriers. Good point. Carlin Calder, Calder um, the founder of the independent record label Vibe Out, said when she started the music industry 10 years ago, there was little enthusiasm to push R&B music in the UK. Quote, it, really, it got me really frustrated at times because I would meet the most talented songwriters and producers from the UK and their talent was overlooked. Unquote. Some, like LMA, here we go, turned to the US with great success. In 2018, she became the first UK star to top the US R&B singles charts since 1992. But things have quietly changed over the past few years in the UK, Card added, with British R&B artists flourishing and selling out shows. Well-established artists such as George Smith, good point, who Nelson describes as a generational talent. Okay. Debatable, but, um, okay. Mabel and Ray... Good point. Have may have been able to build on their huge commercial success. Other point is to Mahalia, Tiana Major Nine. Good point. Good point. Both of whom were picked by Adele to perform at her Hyde Park show in 2022. Clear Soul, Jack James, Bella, Scribs Riley, Shea Universe, as well as groups such as Flo and Children of Zeus, who have racked up significant streams online as proof the genre is not only thriving but reaching new heights. <coughs> 
It has only been possible, industry experts say, as a result of work done by an emerging underground scene to support and develop eyes. The lack of interest from industry leaders led to a DIY boom a decade ago, with people starting their own R&B labels and management companies while artists did as much as they could themselves. Jack James, who uh, with a V, uh, who is featured in Apple Music's Up Next program, was signed by Calder after she heard his songs on SoundCloud. He describes his setup at home with a studio mic and other equipment as a privilege. Quote, I like to work by myself, so when I put my head down, I can really lock in and create something magical, he said. I've been lucky enough not to have pressure from any label telling me what to do, telling me how I should make my music, unquote. Some criticised what they felt to be short-sighted nature in developing emerging R&B artists. Quote, what, we can, what can be quite frustrating is that you hear someone come out with a song and they never ever get an opportunity to grow if the follow-up song doesn't necessarily take off as the first song did. The artist manager Nathan Burke, who represents Cleo Soul and producer Inflow, said it may not take off straight away, but you keep developing and over time, when you see that return on investment, everyone's going to win, unquote. Rather critically acclaimed artist uh, Neo Jessica Joshua, better known as Neo, my queen, agreed that R&B, quote, is probably one of the hardest to break into in the UK. The genre continues to do well internationally. Neo, whose second album, Saturn, was nominated for a Grammy in 2020, added, quote, I have a massive fan base in America. They really understand British R&B and they really love it because it doesn't sound like the R&B that they know. We've got our own flair and twist, unquote. David Orelaja, 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 uh, who manages Tiana Major 9, said the internet had allowed British R&B artists to have access to audiences across the world at their fingertips. Spotify, Amazon, Apple Music or Tidal, these massive platforms are backing UK R&B. They're putting us in the same world, on the same platform, and on the same playlist as a lot of artists that we look up to. It just made it a lot easier and shows there's definitely an audience for it. People want it. DJ Ace, who presents uh, BBC Radio One Extra R&B show, said while R&B had been ignored in the UK, executives in the US were taking notice of recent talent. Quote, I've just come back from LA which er- and everybody was talking about UK R&B, which blew my head. Over here, R&B artists are struggling to get heard and noticed. Unquote. There was excitement among managers, artists and DJs for the year to come, particularly with the success of records such as Scissor, uh, Scissors. Another mention of Scissors this, <laughs> this episode. DJ Ace is preparing to take a group of artists, including uh, Jazz Karras, James Vickery, love Jazz Karras, uh, James Vickery, Kadeem Tyrell, and Minelia, I'm seeing how you say it, to this year's uh, South by Southwest Festival in uh, Austin, Texas. Uh, I think this year is going to be absolutely phenomenal, DJ said. There's a global audience that really wants to hear us in the UK scene. It's so attractive. Yeah, I mean, it is what it is at this point, right? Um, you just have to... There's clear, there's clearly an audience for it, and that's good. They may not be in the UK. They may not solely be in the UK. And while that is unfortunate, um, it is what it is. And um, I feel like R&B artists need to just um, res- resign to that fact that um, you know, if you want to succeed, you just have to get your shit, make your shit international on purpose, um, and not just you know do you know obviously you're. If you're based in the UK, then you're going to be performing shows in the UK. But the quicker you get out there, the quicker you're going to get you're going to blow up because there's clearly an appetite for it. Um, there's clearly love for UK R&B, um, even if um, people just see it as R&B and don't you know localize it. Um, yeah, it's just a it's it's just a thing. And UK music industry uh, illuminati right they just don't fuck with it for some reason i just don't i don't get it 
clearly the likes of Trevor Nelson and DJ don't have quite the answer, I guess. I don't really know if they answered the question. Why is it so hard? Um, but it doesn't really matter because there's a way. There's a there's a road. There's a roadmap. There's a roadmap for. And I, I mean, I, I I've said this before, but you know, I saw Georgia Smith. Funny enough, support Nao actually um, in Leeds um, when she had only like three songs under her belt before um, before February, whatever the date was, before Lost and Found. Um, yeah, she only had like three songs out. And one of them was Blue Lights, and that's one of my favorite songs of hers. Probably is my favorite song of hers. Um, next to the title track of Lost and Found, and um, yeah, you know, she she was she was great then, and literally a year after, she just popped off, right? Um, and her first album was highly anticipated, um, and you know, and she just got an American audience, got an international audience, and that was it. After the races, Tiana Major Nine, after the races now. Um, but yeah, it's unfortunate, but it is what it is in this case. Okay, I mentioned art before, um, so let's get into that one. Uh, this is about the London art scene specifically. Um, it's literally called London's Art Scene. Has been captured by corporate culture. Um, this is written by Sam Bright uh, via Nav- Navarra Media. And um, has he has he dropped the book yet? The um, Why We Need to Save Country from Its Capital. I, I still want to get into that. I remember b- gassing up previously, and I still want to read it. Um, so this one's a bit of a quicker read, I, I think. Yeah, I mean, from paragraph, it's quicker read. Um, but yeah, let's jump right in. See what's see what's going in in the London art scene. Right. Last week, I was sitting in a Marylebone High Street cafe, part of Central London's oligarch district, um, ogling as a house deposit in the form of handbags were paraded outside the window when I caught the conversation on the next table. It was being led led by the younger of two men, a posh-sounding guy, I guessed in his late 30s, trying to get his point across to an older, grain compatriot by growing steadily louder and more forceful by the time he'd reached his crescendo Everyone in the cafe knew the pair were in the theatre business. The problem with working in London is that the overheads are so high, he barked. People are forced to make commercial decisions all the time rather than doing stuff that's generally good and creative. Bars. The facts back up his argument. 12 years of austerity has seen the UK arts world lose more than a third of its funding. While a new levelling up agenda is also seeing grants funnelled away from London theatres. A short-sighted plan to rob Peter to pay Paul. A third of London's music venue, uh, venues and studios shut uh, shut between 2007 and 2016, and more than half of London's nightclubs closed their doors between 2008 and 2016, with a further quarter following during the pandemic. London's decades-old cost of living crisis is manifesting as cost of culture crisis, with the younger people with the young people flocking to our capital every year, scared of even attempting to end, enter insecure, low-paid creative professions in the arts cinema or even journalism instead I, well i mean i've tried to get into all three um <laughs> i mean cinema a little less so um but journalism most fucking definitely and um honestly you know you can um but for one thing you need like a i forgot what it's called nctj i think that's the, that's the correct degree this is a specific journalism degree so for half of the journalism jobs you need that anyway so if you don't have that then throw it in the bin, throw your application in the bin, 
Um, but yeah, man, it's not. Uh, hey, man, it's not. It's not for lack of trying. It's not for lack of trying. I'm still insecure, but it's not for lack of trying. Anyway, um, instead, and I don't know how the fuck I've, I've, I've applied for many arts positions. I've gotten close to several, um, and uh, it just never happened for me for whatever reason. There was a great, um, there was a great agency role I went for last year. Um, the way like a basically you know just an agent, right? And uh, most of the people being represented were photographers, and uh, you know I looked at their portfolios and I actually genuinely liked their work. I, enjoy, I genuinely enjoyed their work. I loved the storytelling of some of them. Um, they were different um, in every way. Some avant-garde, some fashion photography, some storytelling, um, some with film, digital cameras. Like it was good vibes. Um, and yeah, I felt like I gave a good interview, but. Um, just wasn't I I I believe for me personally so it's either either location based or race based. Um and it's probably both. But um yeah, it's I I get it. I get what Mr uh, Sam Bryce talking about here though. Um very acutely. Instead our universities are spewing out swarms of management consultants. Are they? Okay. More than half of the country's nearly one hundred thousand consultants are based in London, despite the capital only accounting for some fifteen percent of the overall UK population. Crave professions are populated by boring, homogenous, posh blob. The only people who can afford, thanks to Bank of Mum and Dad, to work in, in, insecure, insecurely. There we go. Yeah, that's that's facts. That's facts. Talk about that. Despite America's Nepo baby scandal, whereby the country has uh, been discovering that the offspring of rich and famous people tend to also be rich and famous, they still lag way behind our Nepo island. The Sutton Trust. 20, oh, that's a bar. The Sutton Trust 2019 report elitist Britain found that nearly a fifth of people in the higher regions of Britain's top professions went to private school and then Oxford or Cambridge. For context, only 7% of Brits are educated privately and only 1% go to Oxbridge, yet media and music uh, media and music are dominated by former pupils. While politicians preach the language of meritocracy, that anyone can succeed regardless of their background, our cultural scene is becoming increasingly dominated by the offspring of fortune as the creative professions remain inaccessible to the majority. Of course, London is one city of many, but unfortunately it's a blueprint for the cultural landscape of Britain. London sets the tempo of national life, for better or worse. It's been a beacon of inspiration and even escape for decades. London's unique cultural and economic position has been fortified by the predictable failure of leavening up, yet the capital's horizons have contracted as people from working class and marginalised backgrounds from inside and outside the capital are shut out of their cultural elite, of the cultural elite. This wasn't always the case. The angry young men of the 1950s and 1960s, often from northern working-class backgrounds, breached the walls of London cultural establishment and punctured the social stereotypes of the era. Alan Silito was one, the son of a factory worker. He left school at 14 and contracted tuberculosis uh, during World War II. In 1958, amidst a working-class moment of the post-war era, he released the best-selling Saturday night and Sunday morning, which documented the love, violence, and pride of his hitherto hidden brim. Of this hitherto hidden brim. Two years later, a book was adapted to film and was a complete breakthrough in the way working-class people were depicted on screen. I've got a note on that, and I'll finish on that. Uh, creative expression has likewise been hindered by the mass depletion of London's social housing stock, fracturing and displacing the capital's working class. The proportion of Londoners living in social housing has fallen from a high of 35% in 1981 to just 20% today. While the social and physical fabric of the capital is bulldozed to make way for more Lego-inspired architecture, 
London's rebellious youth is now confined to vintage markets and Marxist meme pages. Being subversive is allowed, but only in your spare time, and certainly not if means upsetting your landlord. The cost of housing in the capital was prohibitive to any form of cultural or creative expression, especially given the government's increasingly miserly support for the arts. In 2010, average private rental uh, prices in London have grown at five times the rate of earnings, private rents having jumped by a reported 17% in the last year, while the average cost of buying in the capital has nearly doubled from 279,000 to 542,000 pounds. The average first-time buyer deposit in the capital is now £147,000. Oh, that's a long way for me. Uh, such that the housing market has been aptly, na- uh, aptly labelled an inheritocracy by the Financial Times. Property tycoons buy up local haunts, places like historic jazz venue The Junction, and its neighbouring shops and cafes in the little Portugal area of Lambeth, with the intention of turning them into identikit Private housing blocks. Kill me now. Seriously, that, that whole sentence just depressed me. Rebellion is further hindered in the age of clicktivism, and that anti-establishment uh, rage is uh, channeled through online petitions that generate considerable online noise, but little real-world impact. If the 100,000 signature threshold means MPs have to consider giving airtime to the topic in question, but anyone who has watched a run-of-the-mill parliamentary debate knows how unlikely they are to influence government policy. The way in which rebellion has been restricted isn't the fault of the individual, but rather the predominance of a repressive economic system that doesn't allow for nascent, insurgent, financially risky creative expression. Quote, you find no man at all intellectual who's willing to leave London. No, sir. When a man is tired of London, he is tired of life. For there is in London all that life can afford, said Samuel Johnson in 1777. In 2023, London, London provides... A life that few intellectuals can actually afford. <sighs> okay, so first of all, that quote made me think of my pops, funny enough. I remember asking him a few years ago, and obviously he's in his, you know, he's in his 50s, coming to 60s now. Like He has no reason to go back to London, right? He's, you know, nearing retirement age. My mum is literally retired um, now. Um, they have no reason because they used to live in London um, before uh, before I was born. They lived in Wilsdon Green, and um, you know they have no reason to live in London, right? They they obviously don't. They had no reason to, right? And they moved for obvious reasons, right? They had a family. It was a family of four. Why be in London if you're a family of four and you're not a you know creative person like my pops or my mum is? I mean, they can be creative, but that's not there. That wasn't their Um but. That's not how they made their bread. So why be there? Um, and I was, I was just thinking of my, I was just thinking of my pops when that when that quote came through because I remember asking him like years ago, would you ever live lived in London if you know if the if if in a perfect world he was like no, <laughs> why would I? Um, and he doesn't have the affinity for it that I do. Um, you know he was born there, he grew up there. You know, proper North London kid, right? You know, born in Stoke Newton and uh, grew up near Arsenal. Uh, Highbury, and um, you know, he 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 made his lumps there, right? He he grew up in there, and you know, like I said, he has no reason to to live there anymore. No reason to live the city life. Obviously, he goes there regularly for work, but why why live there? It's different from it's different going there for work now and again than living there. Me, I feel like I 
not need to, but I want to work inside London, right? Um, I feel like everything I enjoy is in London, you know, going to shows, hitting up certain things, photography. What better place? What better place for me? You know what I mean? Um, in in the in the perfect world. But um, I wanted to mention uh, the uh, Silito, um paragraph talking about you know nineteen fifties and sixties and stuff like that. You know there was a there was a type of film. <coughs> I'll leave it here uh, uh, to the next bit, to the next segment. There was a type of film called uh, kitchen sink dramas uh, back in the day. Um, so um, you know your Ken Loach films um, and uh, one I'll lay out sp- and, and early Michael Caine films, right? You know your Alfie's, for example, right? Alfie's probably a little, a little on the fringe, but you know it, it makes sense, right? It's just a um, young. Um, well, actually, you know what? I got a laptop right here. Let me look. <laughs> Let me just uh, get off the act- expressed expressive definition um, of a kitchen sink drama because I can explain it, but um, you know. I'd rather, I'd rather just um just uh you know explain it explain it um how however my search engine tells me it is um kitchen sink realism basically is a cultural movement um uh, developed in the 50s and 60s in theater art novels films television plays protagonists usually could be described as angry young men which they were talking about disillusioned with modern society Used the style of social realism, which depicted the domestic situations of working class Britons living in cramped rented accommodation and spending their off hours drinking in grimy pubs to explore controversial uh, social and political issues ranging from abortion to homelessness. Um, the harsh, realistic style contra- contrasted sharply with the escapism of the previous generation's so called well made plays, um, which um, developed, which was a genre in the 19th century theatre scene. Um, that's when it started, anyway. So, yeah, you know, um, Coronation Street, EastEnders, those are, you know, very, those are kind of like, um, you know, distant children of kitchen sink realism, um, you know, of the, uh, those, those shows still carry the DNA of kitchen sink. Um, and it's hard to do that now and be provocative. Um, you know, even films like uh, Babylon, uh, which covers these, uh, basically uh black kids in i think brixton and uh you know they're they're working they're obviously working class right and they're trying you know set up sound have sound system parties and they're you know just enduring racism and stuff like that real shit right real shit i i just don't i just don't i can't imagine these films being made anymore and there's a reason for that you know people of that ilk aren't can't get their shit made because they're working class and because they're being shut out of the whole sector. You know, you'll get um, you'll get a couple breaking through as like a short film or a web series, you know what I mean, stuff like that. Or you might get, you know, lower middle class vibes for some of them, you know, sli- with, with the slice of life. Um, there's plenty of those shows. You know, Fleabag is a good um, example. Very middle class. It's funny. I'm um, don't get me wrong. It's great. It's a good show, right? I get it. Right? I see why it was so popular, but it's not working class. It's just not. Um, and there's a reason. And there's a reason for that. Phoebe Waller Bridge is not working class. Um, and while I respect Phoebe Waller Bridge's, uh, you know, writing chops and where she's gotten, she's not working class. She's just not. Um, and um, even with, 
you know, the likes of, uh, you know, John Boyega, for example, right? Um, you know, he came from work class backgrounds. I remember a video uh, where he explained uh, how he got the uh, Star Wars part and he literally had like no money at that point, but he got the part, right? Um, but, you know, I don't see him dropping a kitchen sink drama. Not that I want it, not, you know, not that I'm ordering him, you must make a kitchen sink drama. You know, <laughs> it's just different. People don't focus on these things anymore. They just don't. They focus on upward mobility. They focus on fantasy now. Um, and that's cool. You know, I'm here for Afrofuturism. I'm, all, I'm here for all that. I'm here for fantasy. I've got, you know, things in mind for that. I've got ideas for that. But I feel like there's, there needs to be those just gritty, you know, just realistic shit. Um, stuff like Belfast, actually. That's a good shout. I haven't seen it. My pop saw it. He said it was good. And, you know, that's very, from what I've seen, very, you know, down to earth, very grounded. And I feel like we need more of those kind of things. Uh, more of those films, more of those, uh, more of those pieces of art. But because of, quote unquote, corporate culture, and because of, I think I remember, this links to another piece um, I read a few weeks ago, I think, uh, where it was talking about how working class artists are being, you know, pushed out. And there's less of them now. Um, I forgot the percentage, but there's less, there was a higher percentage of working class people in media um, in, you know, the 50s, 60s and 70s than there are now. And that's the unfortunate thing. And because there aren't, because there are less of those people, the less of their works that are going to be seen. And instead, we're going to get these lower middle class, you know, vibey kind of shows and and films and you know, while they're while they're mostly quality on their own, right? I'm sure they are. I'm sure, there's a reason they get made. Why doesn't why they, why is there not like a two pints of lager and a packet of crisps? Where's those kind of shows? I rarely see those anymore, and that's unfortunate and deliberate. Okay, so I went long, longer on that one than I thought I would. A relatively short article, but I decided to just, um, you know, try to explain uh, explain everything more. But um, here, that's, that's the show right there. Um, so, let's finish off with um, the topic on love. Um, obviously, Valentine's Day has come and gone, uh, but I still wanted to read something based upon, you know, something about love. Um, I find the... I find the... Uh, I find, obviously, the concept of love is obviously, you know, one of the most fascinating things of if you know human behavior um yeah just factually it is right uh, you know everybody experiences it i'm sure um but i found this article um just randomly um i've never heard this publication but it's, it's a fun read um it's by atlas obscura uh written by april white it's called uh, inside a decades-long quest to measure love um, so, um, yeah, and obviously this is more scientific-based, um, but, you know, still fascinating. So, uh, let's get into it. In the fall of 1937, Ed Kiefer was a senior in the School of Engineering at the University of Toledo in Ohio. Toledo, holy Toledo. Uh, tall, slender, and bespectacled, bespectacled, 
Uh, Keith Hart was the president of the Calculus Club, the vice president of the Engineering Club, and a member of the school's exclusive all-male honor society. He also invented the Cupidoscope. Cupidoscope. Brilliant. The electrical device uh, could not have been more perfectly designed to bring campus-wide fame to his creators, Kiefer and his less sociable classmate John Hawley. He promised to reveal with scientific precision if a couple was truly in love. As the inventors explained to a United Press reporter as news of their innovation spread, the cupidoscope uh, delivered on its promise, quote, in terms called amor cycles, the affection that the college girl has for her boyfriend, unquote. Built in the school's physics laboratory, the cupidoscope was fashioned from an old radio cabinet, a motor spark coil, and an electrical resistor. Uh, to test their bond, a man and a woman would grip electrodes on either side of the cupidoscope and move them toward one another until the woman felt a spark. Not of attraction, but of electricity. The higher her tolerance for this mild current, the more of a love signal the meter registered. A needle decorated with hearts purported to show her devotion on a scale that ranged from no hope to sea preacher. <laughs> sea preacher! Exclamation mark! Love it. It all sounds like a slightly painful party game, but the cupidoscope was one experiment in a serious decades-long quest to quantify love, from the bond between two people to one's personal appeal to possible partners. This undertaking garnered the attention of leading scientists across the United States and in Europe in the early years of the 20th century. And though some of the science behind it might still have a place in the study of emotion, it is memorialised most prominently in the Penny Arcade mainstay known as the Love Tester. Folklore is filled with rituals designed to take the guesswork out of romance. The full moon, of, yeah, the full moon, fire, the annual harvest, all have been used, and in some cases are still used, to predict the path of true love. So it follows that technological innovation would lead to new strategies for div- div- divination, divination, divination. Um, in the United States and Western Europe in the late 90s and early 20th centuries, the professionalization of medicine and widespread adoption of electricity held the promise of new insights into the metaphorical heart and that elusive romantic energy, to say nothing of the very real understanding of the heart's actual electrical signals. As early as 1901, a Philadelphia attorney was advocating for such uh, for taking such invention seriously. Quote, Love meters are in demand by every young man and woman and should be patented, unquote. By 1910, newspaper was bemoaning that science is slowly killing romance. Early innovations, including, oh, what the fuck is that word? Plethin, plethis, plethismograph, a doctor's instrument still used today for measuring uh, changes in volume of the, in the body. Hope I don't say that again. Uh, in the University of Pennsylvania laboratory of esteemed psychologist Leitner Whitmer, great name, the New York World reported, uh, the device was employed to see if the name of a certain young man or woman stirred the blood enough to register a signal. Um, and there's a little illustration there if you want to go spin. Uh, detecting love, ardor, or appeal uh, was a relatively light-hearted experiment that grew out of a darker scientific pursuit of the early 20th century detecting lies. Many of the same hypotheses that drove the development of the polygraph, uh, that truth or deceit can kind of be read in the variations of one respiration, blood pressure and heart rate, drove attempts to create a love meter. But the latter research was far more fun. Columbia uh, University professor William Marston proved this when, in 1928, he hooked his version of this contraption up to a group of actresses in a Manhattan theatre. 
He showed them love scenes starring Greta Garbo and John Gilbert and claimed he could determine each woman's emotional reaction. The media ate up the exhibition and Marston's far less than scientific findings the brunettes are more loving and passionate than blondes. That's, so that's where it comes from. Fascinating. See, I, lo- I love... That's my, that's my favourite type of, like, factoid of, like, where these stupid-ass fucking terms come from. So, I've said this before and I'll say it again. Everything you know about diamonds is marketing. Diamonds are forever. Diamonds are a girl's best friend. All of that came out of De Beers marketing. Look that shit up. Or... Um, Ghost Spin explained um, on Netflix. Um, it's literally like 20 minute episodes and uh, they did one on diamonds and it's been just continually seared in my mind. Wifey is not getting a diamond ring. Just just so, just so you know that. <laughs> it would be love doctors uh, popped up uh, everywhere. Scientists at a hospital in London claim to have developed a psychogalvanic uh, instrument that could detect affection in the electrical conductance of the skin, as did C.A. Rucknick, a University of Iowa professor, who, professor whose emotion meter you sweat as a sign of romance. <laughs> okay. His method, which involved attaching electrodes to the palm of the hand, was superior to the early ones, uh, to early ones that track respiration because, uh, quote, the activity of the sweat glands is absolutely involuntary, unquote. He told the Associated Press, actually another quote, persons are known to control uh, their breathing. Skin conductance like respiration and heart rate remain measures used to assess emotional response today, if not love exactly. The Society for Electrical Development, oh, this sounds loving, a group established lobby, a group established to lobby on behalf of the electricity industry, advocated for discovering the truth of the metaphorical heart by monitoring the physical one with the telegraphone? Telegraphone? Like telegraph, telegraphone, uh, a device worn. I like how I like that sounds nice. Telegraphone. That's a great. Right? I like. I like. I like how it rolls off the tongue. Telegraphone, a device worn on the chest to detect flutters in the presence of a lover. The same idea. Newspapers from Connecticut to California reported was endorsed by French cardiologist Rene Lutenbacher. God, these names are crazy. Twentieth century names, just outstanding. Lutenbacher. Um, who is better known for his studies of abnormalities of the actual cardiac muscle. And at Westinghouse Electric Company, a research engineer proposed that love was a form of radiation. According to Associated Press, he promised that, quote, in the near future, we may be able to capture and interpret these personality and thoughts through electrical impulses, unquote. Into this fray stepped uh, uh, J. Frank Meyer. He was not a scientist, but an entrepreneur. Oh, of course, I have to have an entrepreneur in this who had made his name first as a printer, producing the sometimes risque novelty cards in demand at the penny arcades that were newly popular in the 1910s. By 1920, Meyer had established the Exhibit Supply Company in Chicago to build the machines that sold the cards for a penny apiece. And then, when the arcades began to lose their audience to movie theatres, Meyer got more inventive, dreaming up a host of new amusement machines that combined modern mechanical and electrical know-how with eternal human insecurities. Are you strong enough? Are you fast enough? Could anyone love you? Deep. (laughs) Deep one. Deep last one there. In a patent application submitted in August 1930, Meyer sketched the first penny arcade love meter. Less a measure of attraction between two people than a single person's appeal. It was a tall, narrow wooden cabinet with elegant Queen Anne feet that made it look like a hutch in a formal dining room. 
Users will insert a penny and then a grip, uh, and then grip a gleaming metal handle molded to the shape of the fingers. Uh, the machine would then measure the user's level of passion from cold to uncontrollable. <laughs> uncontrollable. You're so fucking hot, bruv. You're uncontrollable. So sexy. Several months later, Maya would name it the Love Tester and submit a design pattern application for a metal panel uh, that read, Measure Your Sex Appeal on This Love Meter. Outstanding. Versions of the Love Tester appear to have been manufactured even before the pattern was granted in 1933. But into the late 1930s, uh, the appearance of the Love Meter at a local arcade was still enough of a novelty to warrant a newspaper mention. As scientists continued to pursue the ultimate proof of love in the laboratory, anyone with a penny could experiment at the arcade. The science underlying Maya's creation was a substantial, was as substantial as that of any of the Love Meters that had come before it, which is to say, there was none. When the user gripped the handle of the Love Tester, it did not detect the pulse or measure the conductance. The action set a wheel spinning inside the machine. When friction slowed it to a stop, the completed electrical circuit would light a bulb, light up a bulb on the meter at random. Love it, uh, love it was saying was just a roulette. It's impossible to know if Ed Kiefer and John Hawley had originally intended their love meter, the computer scope, to earn them professional fame or simply in, in, invitations to uh, the semester's sorority bashes. The invitations were forthcoming. But after University of Toledo psychologist W.E. McClure dismissed uh, the invention as, in the words of the Associated Press, too crude to register evidence of love, Kiefer was determined to show the computer scope was fit for more than a penny arcade. McClure was, uh, went on to say that the device might, quote, pave the way for scientific research to test the resistance of the individual to electrical shock under emotional strain, or it may be improved to measure the determination of a subject to make a good impression before a group, unquote but that does not seem uh, to have lessened the blow of the criticism. In the first days of 1938, uh, Kiefer was presented with a national platform to prove the value of his invention when he was invited to introduce the computerscope to the country on a popular CBS radio show, We the People. The machine was to be tested live from Radio City by a newly married couple, but the producers already knew the outcome. They had no more need for scientific accuracy than arcade goers who pumped tens of thousands of pennies into the love tester. So they handed Kiefer a script and didn't bother to plug in the computer meter. The computer meter, uh, like all efforts uh, before and all those after, was destined to be nothing more than a gimmick. A niche uh, the love meter had proved could be quite lucrative. After his trip to New York, the University of Toledo student newspaper reported, Kiefer discarded the failed science experiment, but was soon resurrected by two enterprising sophomores who cared less about how much a woman loved her man than how she might come to love a brand, say a particular slice of sliced bread. Uh, they tried to sell the computer meter uh, as a marketing tool before trying to sponsor this product. A couple's love was lackluster. Afterward, the computer, ma- computer meter registered bliss. Okay, well, there you go. That's, uh, that's the, I guess, the history of the computer meter and just love testers. I, I remember like watching Boardwalk Empire and I was always just like fascinated by it. Obviously, you know, the aesthetics was, you know, just obviously in the height of Atlantic City. If you haven't seen the show, it's basically, you know, in, in Atlantic City and like the probation era and um, and basically led by, you know, corrupt people, led by Steve Buscemi um, as the main character. Shout out to Michael K. Williams um, as a chalky white goated character. Um, but yeah, you know, I was always fascinated by just the aesthetics of the spot. Um, more than the social politics of the show, which was 
very what it rode on um just a lot of just domestic violence and and uh just yeah a lot of backstabbing yeah very uh very uh tough show to watch um just uh, in terms of a marathon but yeah you know i just uh i found i find those aesthetics very fascinating very fascinating um it also reminds me of a show um uh, excuse me um what's it called uh, american restoration one of those you know re- literally just a restoration show right you know one of those um but the kicker was um it was just these dudes in like the middle of the desert and they had their like shop and it looked like a chop shop but that people would always bring in just super retro shit like old coke machines old jukeboxes like proper you know throwback americana and they would just restore the fucker and like it was lit so i wonder if they ever did a love tester um because <laughs> they definitely did like um you know you know penny penny arcades and stuff like that they definitely did those so maybe they did a love tester at some point who knows but anyway ladies and gentlemen that's the that's the nearest i'm getting to talking about love <laughs> and uh, i'll leave it there for the fifth end podcast network i've been charlie saying it's been what's good intro music has been too much by vanilla thanks to your music for being used track you can find both their links in the full show notes and thanks to friend of ivy nappy hire for the being used charismatic for the interlude you can also find his link in the full show notes hope you'll have a good week I shall always, always try and do the same with love. But until next time, take it easy, ladies and gentlemen.